Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Father, as we open your word and seek restoration, we pray, Lord, that what Jesus brought into that synagogue, you might bring into this sanctuary now. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we might see and be taught by your word. In Christ's name, amen. Humor me here. Join me in a thought experiment. Imagine what it would be like this morning if Jesus came into the room. If Jesus attended our worship service this morning, what kind of thing might happen? How might that go? I can imagine the nervousness I might feel. But then the immediate relief, realizing I didn't have to preach this morning, because Jesus was here, and he would surely be willing to take that burden off me. Would you tremble? Would you kneel? Would you rush up to him? Would you be afraid to approach? Would you get your phone out and flip the camera and try to get a picture with Jesus in the background and get it online as quickly as possible? I know I might start thinking, how quickly could we update the church website so that everybody knows where Jesus went to church this Sunday? Go thou and do likewise. As I think about that, I also think more seriously the kinds of questions that it would be great to ask him, the mysteries that he might be able to resolve, things he could clear up for us, stuff that uh, we might like to have some clarity on. Oftentimes, when we imagine seeing Jesus face to face, that's the focus. We imagine the knowledge that we might receive from him. But I imagine that if you are suffering physically, or if someone in your family is, you might have a different dream of how that appearance might go. Instead of thinking how cool it would be to get a picture with Jesus or thinking how interesting it would be to get him to speak to some sort of theological mystery, you might think, actually, I would just like him to heal me or to restore someone I love. When you think about what it would be like for Jesus to show up, that, to me, is the most immediate reaction. To know that someone had entered into the room who had the power to heal you, to restore you, make you whole, If you had that need, it would supersede any intellectual curiosity 
that you might have. It would supersede any desire to uh, be known or to be celebrated because of your proximity to Jesus. You just want him to heal. For the people in this synagogue, of course, it wasn't a thought experiment. Jesus actually did enter into the synagogue. Jesus did go toe-to-toe with the Pharisees in their own synagogue. And the question of conflict was this very one. Whether or not it would be wrong for Jesus to make this man whole. That was the question. This entire circles around. This is a story that has, you might say, uh, two endings. It ends one way for Jesus, and it ends another way for the Pharisees. And if you trace both of those stories, the two sets of characters at odd with one another, and you ask yourself how those stories end and where they end, you see that they're diametrically opposed. That in this encounter, there is a conflict, a struggle between restoration on the one hand and destruction on the other. Note as you look at the text, as you look at the story, how each of these lines progresses. You read at the very beginning these words, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. This is just a bit of scene setting. You could easily pass over this sentence to get to the heart of the story. But there is actually something in this that's pretty interesting. Because in the first eight verses of the chapter, there's been this conflict out in the grain fields with these Pharisees. They've challenged Jesus. They've drawn a line in the sand. They've said, what you're doing is wrong trying to entrap him. And you might wonder how Jesus then follows up on that conflict. Well, here we have our answer. He was out in the grain fields. He mixes it up with these Pharisees. And then he goes to their synagogue and enters into it. He's confronted them out on the outskirts of town. And now he goes straight into the heart of their worship into their safe place, into the place where they are respected, where they are the leaders of the congregation, and he plants himself right there. Which isn't usually what we do. Whenever we run into conflict with people, conflict tends to teach us to keep our distance. You get into an argument with someone, and then the next time you see them, you avoid them. Or you resort to pleasantries. You don't go deep because you don't want to uh, stir up that conflict again. You stay away from them and you hope they'll stay away from you. But that's not how Jesus responds to conflict. Jesus goes from the grain fields into their very synagogue. He takes to them. Conflict he brings to them. He doesn't let them walk away from it. And maybe we shouldn't either. Maybe if we were learning lessons from Jesus here, we would look at this and say, when we encounter hypocrisy, we shouldn't keep our distance from it. We should avoid it. Maybe we should confront it. Maybe we should seek to go to the heart of it the way that Jesus does. So Jesus does that. He goes into their synagogue. Right? You can ask what a threatening gesture this must have been to these men. To have Jesus on their doorstep. And how immediately their thoughts turn. What are we going to do? 
Your thoughts might turn towards selfies and or healing, as we've said. Their thoughts turn towards traps, towards charges, accusations. We read, a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So that's the situation in their congregation. There's a man in their congregation who has a withered hand. They all know this. This is a man who would be known to the Pharisees. He's, he's one of them. He's someone in their church, as it were, who has this need. Not only that, they know they have a friend who has a withered hand. That's one thing. But they also know Jesus goes around healing people. He goes around restoring people to health and to life. What do they make of this knowledge? What do the Pharisees do with this knowledge? Well, they try to turn this man who they know, this friend, this fellow worshiper, into a moral dilemma for Jesus, a test. They pit Sabbath observance against this man's healing. That's the conflict that they pose, baiting the hook, as it were, with this man who's a member of their congregation, they're willing to offer up. What is it that they're willing to sacrifice in this scenario? If you think about it, they're willing to sacrifice the well-being of the man. In order to, to score points against Jesus, they would offer this man up and sacrifice him. They would rather see Jesus confounded than this man healed. What do they hope to gain from it? Just grounds for an accusation. They're just doing what we would call in legal terms a test case, right? They're putting this guy and his need forward in the hope that Jesus will then face a dilemma and will violate the Sabbath, and then they can accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker as they've already attempted to do. They just want an advantage over their adversary, and the price they're willing to pay for it is this man who's in their church, this man with a withered hand. Now remember, When they encountered Jesus in the grain field, he already gave them a text from the Old Testament to reflect on. He quoted Hosea 6, verse 6, where God says, I desire steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So he's preached to them about the heart of God and what God expects. And then he goes into their synagogue. And what do they do? Is it mercy they choose, or is it sacrifice? What do they offer to the king when he enters into their presence? Not mercy, sacrifice. So Jesus answers. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So he's reasoning with them. He's giving them an analogy to think about. Right, they're posing a puzzle to him. Is it right? Is it permissible to heal someone on the Sabbath, or would that be breaking the Sabbath? And so, to answer the question, Jesus proposes a similar situation, one that they might have clarity on. They could then apply that clarity to the question that they've raised. Now, he's doing this not to help them understand uh, Sabbath law. He's doing it to reveal their own hypocrisy, their own inconsistency. Because really, they already know the answer to their question, right? When he poses this question about the sheep, of course, 
any of these Pharisees, if one of his sheep was in peril, if one of his sheep fell into a pit and it happened to the Sabbath day, he would stand there asking himself, hmm, what should I do? Should I pull my property out of peril or should I let it perish because today is the Sabbath day? He wouldn't ask the question, he would pull it out because it's valuable. He wouldn't want to lose it. In fact, in the Old Testament, not only would he be permitted to pull his sheep out of peril, but anyone around would have been commanded to help him do it. There's actually a moral imperative imposed on others. If, if your neighbor has a sheep who is in peril, you should help him rescue it. Not only your neighbor, by the way, but also your enemy. If you walk by and see that your enemy's sheep has fallen into the pit, God says, don't stand there and think, well, that's karma for you. What goes around comes around. You messed with me, and now your sheep are in peril, and I could do something to help. But of course, you've been mean to me, so I guess this is what you have coming. No. The law actually commands that when your enemy's property is in peril, you would go to him and help him to rescue it. The Pharisees all know this. More importantly, they don't just know it. They live it. This is how they live. They understand how this works. When their sheep are in peril, their sheep get mercy, not sacrifice. Because their sheep are valuable. And they don't want to lose them. And yet, when Jesus enters the synagogue, this man who lives in their midst, this man who desperately needs to be restored, he doesn't get mercy. He gets sacrifice. They're willing that he should suffer for some greater good. Jesus continues. He says, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus here is stating a principle, one that should be obvious. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down and and underline it several times. If you have a red pen, it would be good to write it in red for emphasis. Humans are more valuable than sheep. Humans are more valuable than sheep. If you would rescue your sheep, Jesus says, if that's not a moral dilemma, then how can this be? How can you be wondering whether it's right to heal this man on the Sabbath day if you know it would be right to rescue sheep on the Sabbath? What's wrong with you that you would ask a question like this? Human beings are more valuable than sheep. Now, Jesus has established a pattern of these kinds of comparisons. Right? He's already told us several times in uh, chapter 6 and then again in chapter 10 that human beings are more valuable than birds. Human beings more valuable than sparrows. The point there being, God providentially cares for the birds, and if he does, then you should trust that he cares for you, because you're of so much more value than they are. And Jesus here takes this same logic, but now he's directing it at the Pharisees. You know the value of a sheep, but you seem to have forgotten the value of a man. All the Pharisees would have to do in order to answer Jesus' question rightly is to value a human being rightly. It's not difficult. It doesn't require advanced degrees. It's not a question you need to have really thought about before you find yourself in this situation. This should be obvious. You should already know this. That's the implication of the way Jesus is speaking. If you value human beings 
the way I do. There is no dilemma here whatsoever. Jesus restates the question when he repeats it to them. He says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, not just to heal, but to do good. I don't think he's just developing the theme. He's not just thinking, well, you know, healing is good. I don't like to use the same words over and over again, so I'm going to vary my vocabulary so it's more interesting on the ears. I think what he's doing here is actually broadening the question to show the absurdity of it. Because this is literally what they're asking him. Does God forbid us to do good on the Sabbath? Is God saying we shouldn't do good? We shouldn't do righteousness on the Lord's day? Is that what the Old Testament teaches? Is that the heart of God? If that's a question that you entertain in your mind, then you clearly haven't understood the words of Hosea. That I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love. Knowledge of God over burnt offerings. If you understood those things, as Jesus said, how could you ask such questions? Of course it is right to heal. Of course it is right to do any good to those in need on the Sabbath or on any day. Of course God doesn't forbid such things. All of it really does hinge on what value you place on a human being. And you can see the valuations acting themselves out in the way the two stories conclude. We read, Then he, Jesus, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Those are those endpoints. And they're so different from one another. Jesus refutes their question, and he doesn't allow it to just be hypothetical. He says, of course it's right to do this, and then he does it. He does what is right to do on the Sabbath, and he does it seemingly with so little effort. If you read this passage, you see, as you try to visualize it, Like the moment of healing, I'm not sure where to pinpoint it. I'm not sure exactly how it's done. As I read over this, it's like Jesus turns to the man. He says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand and it's healed. It's like the healing has happened and Jesus is like, show everybody your hands. As if Jesus is just doing it by his presence, by his will. Like there's no even words spoken to say you are healed. It just happens. He is restored. He demonstrates it in the moment as he extends his hand. What was broken in him, what was withered in him, is as healthy as the rest of him. This man has been made whole by the presence of Christ. But then the Pharisees slink out, rebuked, defeated. From their own synagogue, they retreat. But they haven't learned. They're just regrouping. They're just looking for more ways to conspire against him, how to destroy him. Jesus shows this man mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus doesn't let the obligations of the day, the ritual, any higher point get in the way of healing what needs to be restored. The Pharisees, on the other hand, cling to their devaluation 
of the man, and they just plot revenge. Matthew says they're working to destroy Jesus. Makes you wonder, is it right to conspire on the Sabbath? Is it a violation of the Sabbath to want to destroy the Savior? I think maybe it is. There is an irony here working itself out. Jesus values this man in such a way that it leads to restoration. The Pharisees' hypocrisy and their hardness leads to destruction. It leads you to ask yourself the question, is a human being worth mercy? Or are we only really worth sacrificing? How much should our fellow human beings matter to us? How much are they worth to us? How much value do you place on a human being? Ideas, desires, even objects are more valued than human beings in our society. Not because our society is worse than it's ever been, but because our society is the same as it's ever been. Fallen human beings have always put ideas and desires and even objects ahead of the value of human lives. All around us, we see people who are more than willing to sacrifice human beings for good reasons, willing to accomplish higher purposes even if it costs somebody their health, somebody their life, somebody their happiness, somebody their well-being. That's just the way it is. That's the price we have to pay for the greater good. We ourselves struggle with this same temptation. We don't just live in a world that devalues human beings. We struggle to value human beings rightly. Aren't there people that you can think of right now that you would sacrifice if you needed to? Aren't there people in your life that you could see cutting loose under the right circumstances? If somebody has to be sacrificed for the greater good, I have a few in mind that we might start with. If you're honest with yourself, yeah, it's easy to come up with names, especially if you believe that that sacrifice would result in something good, that there would be some silver lining that maybe their suffering would be for the greater good. In Honoré de Balzac's novel, Perigorio, the main character, this aspiring uh, writer, Rastignac, poses this moral dilemma. It's a famous moral dilemma that he gets from an author, Chateaubriand. It's called The Mandarin Paradox. The idea is if you're a young man, an aspiring poet in France, looking to make his way in the world to establish his fortune, what if you could have all your dreams come true and all that was necessary is for some anonymous person in China somewhere on the other side of the world to die? That if you would consent to the death of a person you would never see, you would have no hand in it, no one would ever connect that terrible thing to you, would that be okay if... That sacrifice secured your happiness. Now, when that first comes up in the story, the guy who he's talking to kind of jokingly says, I'm actually on my 33rd Mandarin. Like, I keep sacrificing people. I still haven't made my fortune. But then kind of thinks about it on reflection. He says, no, of course. Of course I wouldn't do that. That would be terrible. It would be reprehensible to sacrifice a human being in order to make my fortune. And most of us are like that. If... uh, 
we're on our best behavior, if the spotlight is shining on us, if we're being asked to render some sort of moral verdict, of course, that would be abhorrent. I would never sacrifice a human being so that I could enjoy some sort of privilege or advantage. We do it all the time, though. We do it constantly. We face the same temptation. The stakes are just lower. It's not that people around the world have to die so that we can have our fortunes made. That people have to suffer sometimes right here. Sometimes in our very presence. Not so that our fortunes can be made, but just so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves or our circumstances. That willingness to sacrifice people on the altar of the greater good reveals something about us. It reveals something about our hearts. It reveals that we have a wrong valuation of human beings. That there's something disordered about the way we value people. It shows, too, a hardness of hearts, a callousness, because Jesus treats that kind of error as if it's unthinkable, as if people who know the Word would never make such a mistake. Ultimately, I think it reveals enmity with God. It shows that in our hearts, oftentimes we're at cross-purposes with Him because we value things differently than He does. We devalue what He values and value things that He doesn't. These Pharisees, they're willing to sacrifice a man that they know, a man that they ought to have compassion on, but they would give him up. They would see Jesus sent out of the synagogue and that man's withered hand still withered at the end of that service if that's what it took for them to win because their hearts were set on destruction, on opposition to Christ. Let's not be like them. Let's not cling to the the things, the ideas that we value more than we value the people around us. How do you measure the worth of a human being? How can I tell what people are worth? How can I look at a person and ask myself, well, what are they worth? Like, like, where should I rank them? Well, here's some things to think about. If God made every human being in his image, then every human being, regardless of what they do, is worthy of respect, has inherent value, inherent worth. That would be a good starting point. If we honored everyone around us as if they were made in God's image, we would be treating people more like the way Jesus does. But there's more that we can say. If you contemplate the love of God, the love that he lavishes upon humanity, if human beings are the object of God's love, doesn't that tell us something about their worth? Just because we believe in total depravity doesn't mean we have to believe that people are worthless. God demonstrates that it's just the opposite in giving himself for them. If he is willing to sacrifice himself for them, how worthy must they be in his eyes? That's true, generally speaking, for all the blessings that God pours out on humanity, but it's true as well, specifically, when we contemplate the gift of grace, the free offer of salvation. It proves the value of human beings. But if you don't insist on the value of human beings, it's all too easy to lose sight of it. So as believers, we don't just have to revalue people, like value them correctly. We kind of have to push in the opposite direction to force ourselves to see the value 
of other people. Otherwise, we'll keep losing it. And the best way to force ourselves is not just to see things a certain way, but to act a certain way. To look at how Jesus acts towards people and try to follow him. Jesus, because he values the man rightly, defies the hypocrites who value things over people. He opposes them to their face. He goes into their synagogue where the healing needs to take place. Jesus restores the broken to wholeness. If we want to value people rightly, that's our example. We don't have the strength to do what Jesus does, but by the power of the Spirit, we can stand against hypocrisy, and we can be instruments of divine restoration. I say there's two stories with two different endings, restoration and destruction. That, of course, is not exactly right, because this passage isn't the end of the story. Both of those plot lines, if you will, continue and are ultimately resolved. And the deciding factor is Jesus' restoring love. Because that love is more powerful than man's will to destruction. They may plot against him. They may seek to destroy him, but they don't have the power. Ultimately, he will restore all things. Christ's boldness is in contrast to their cowardice. Right? Only Christ's intentions will ultimately succeed. They want to destroy Jesus, they just can't do it. But he does have the power to restore, and he uses it. This contrast is starkly illuminated when you consider literally the geography of story's end. Right At the end of the passage, Jesus is still in the synagogue. He is holding his ground. He has healed this man, and imagine the impression that must have left on the people in that congregation. As they saw their leaders depart in ignominy, and Jesus hold the stage, having healed this man, how must their idea of Jesus have been transformed, and their idea of their leaders have been transformed, and their idea of the worth of that man? Jesus stays, because Jesus is victorious. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they depart, just as the devil does in Matthew 4, once Jesus resists him. They slink away, as Satan did. But they must have known. In their hearts, the Pharisees must have known all along what would have been good for that man and what he needed. They knew him, they went to church with him, they knew his need, and they restored, or they opposed his restoration anyway, despite that knowledge. In James 4, 17, James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Anytime we do what they did, anytime we put things before people, we find excuses not to do the right thing. That's sin. That's what sin is. It's hard to fight that sin, though, as long as our scales are weighted in favor of things, not people. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to start learning the value of the people around you. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to start valuing your husband above the things in life. Valuing your wife above the things you could have in life. Valuing your children or your parents, your friends, even your enemies. More than things, the ideas that we're so often encouraged to sacrifice them to. One last thing. As you reflect on this, I want you to consider just one last thing, which is the irony of it all. 
Just as we saw in verses 1 through 8, there is a deep irony in these accusations. In verses 1 through 8, the Pharisees accuse men who are communing with the Lord of rest of violating the day of rest. On its face, the charge is absurd. It's impossible that they could be guilty. Here they go farther, though. They accuse the Lord of rest himself of violating the day of rest by performing a work of restoration. As if somehow that's out of accord with what the Sabbath is all about. This was a constant point of conflict. They often opposed Jesus doing the things that he did and doing them on the Sabbath, on this day of the Lord. And when they do this in John's gospel, in John 5, Jesus replies and Jesus says, My father is working until now and I am working. In other words, it's not just not wrong to restore people on the Sabbath. It is literally the Lord's work. It is literally what this is for. If the Sabbath is for rest, then by definition, it's for restoration. Because restoration and rest go together. You might say the day of rest is made for restoration, which means that they oppose Jesus for the very thing they should have expected him to do, the very thing they should have longed for him to do. As we think about this and we reflect on this, Maybe we can't turn the scales over all at once. Maybe we can't value people as we should all at once. But we could at least long for what we ought to long for on this day of all days. We could long for Christ to restore people. We could long for this day of rest to be a day of restoration. And may it be so. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.